Well, good morning again. You're even better looking than you were 20 minutes ago. <laughs> again, my name is uh, Drew Collins, the worship arts pastor here at South Suburban. And I want to start by saying this morning that God loves you. He loves you. Whether you follow Jesus today or not, God loves you. And he knows you by name. My hope this morning is that as we look at the scripture together, that we all get to know Jesus just a little bit better. So this morning we are in part three of our study of the life of David, one of the major figures in the first half of the Bible. Now, when we think of David, we often think of King David. But before he was a king, he was just a regular guy. And he's not a major figure in the Bible because he always did the right thing. And I think that's so important for us to grasp, especially as we study the life of a man who was called a man after God's own heart. Because if the qualifications for following Jesus are that we always make the right decision, then raise your hand if you qualify. Right? Yeah. However, if we can follow Jesus imperfectly, then not only is there hope for us, but there's hope to offer to this world. Amen? David was someone who followed God imperfectly, as we saw last week and as we'll see again today. In fact, as is so often the case in our own lives, this morning we're going to see that David goes from just having made one bad decision to being right on the cusp of making an even worse decision. You ever been there? Yeah, what we'll see today is that what saves this man from making a horrible choice is a really smart woman. How much of human history do you think could be summed up that way? <laughs> this is going to be great. Okay. So we, we all know the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have others. Yeah, that's it. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. The golden rule is great. At least it's great until somebody mistreats you. Right? And then we use the get even rule. Do unto others as others have done unto you. Right? It's natural for us to want the best for those who are nice to us. It's also natural to want to burn someone's stuff to the ground when they mistreat us. Not only is it natural, it seems right. It only seems fair, doesn't it? Eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth. Right? When you take a punch, you counterpunch. Right? It's only natural to want to get even. The problem, though, with getting even is that it makes you even with someone you don't even like. Why would you want to be that person? Why would you want to be like them? It gives them control, and it sets you back. Consider that as we look at today's story, which takes place during David's eight years, not as a shepherd anymore, but not yet as a king, as a fugitive. We'll be in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 25 today, which is not quite 20% of the way through the Bible. Uh, because we'll cover a fair amount of text, we won't put all of it up on our screens. So feel free to grab a Bible in the uh, seat back in front of you. Uh, there's also a notes page in your bulletin to follow along. 1 Samuel 25, starting in verse 2, it says this. A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. 
He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal. Now, the first thing we see is that this man was wealthy. A thousand goats and three thousand sheep. That doesn't really translate today. But if we were to move the story forward, it might say, and he created a company called Facebook. Or, and he was the CEO of Microsoft. Okay? This guy was really, really wealthy. And it was shearing season, which means that he was literally looking at his annual financial reports. All right? All of his workers were out there shearing the animals. And, and based on this season, he would know whether he turned a profit, and if so, how much. Okay. Keep going. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. Now, you're going to love this juxtaposition. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. We'll talk about Abigail more in just a minute, but for now, let's stay focused on Nabal. He was surly. That means he was harsh. Literally, it means he was heavy or he was a burden to deal with. He was the kind of person who resorts to name-calling. And he manages to bring every interaction down to its lowest common denominator. Interestingly, his name gives us some insight here. And I have a quick question for you. How many of you were named after someone in your family? A meaning? A fair number. Okay, and how many of you uh, were given a name that has a meaning to it? And that was the reason why you were given that name. I know that was, that was the case for me. My, my name is Andrew, which means man of strength. I'm married to Sarah, which means princess, right? Well, these practices were just as common in David's day. Listen to this. This man was called Nabal, which means fool. Can you imagine doing that to your kid? <laughs> this is our daughter, Elizabeth. It's our oldest son, Isaiah. And over there, chewing on his shoe is dummy. He's our youngest. Well, Nabal, unfortunately, lived down to his name. Listen, he was, he was wealthy, but he was also an unrestrained, loudmouthed fool. While David was in the wilderness, verse 4 says, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now that's a festive greeting, and here's why. Because Nabal should be in a good mood. Um, his, his annual financial report came in, and he made a lot of money. Pause. Right? So David says, now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. Pause. What was David's first full-time job? Shepherd? Do you think he knew it was sheep shearing time? Yeah, right? But he says, so, now I hear it's sheep shearing time. This is why he starts this way. Uh, when your shepherds were with us, we didn't mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Okay, David's setting up a play here. David and his men, they've been living in the wilderness, living off the land, but they were outlaws and fugitives. David is trying to make a point with Nabal that if Nabal had a prophet, it was due in part to David and his men's protection throughout the year. 
Verse 8, ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my men since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. David's basically saying, since we were good to you, perhaps you would be good to us and share from your abundance, knowing that at any point, we could have just taken what we wanted. Verse 9, when David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. David And Nabal starts living up to his name. Nabal answered David's, David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Listen, Nabal knows who David is, right? David is a folk hero. He's lived in the king's court, and he is celebrated as the one who killed Goliath, right? Nabal knows who David is. But he also knows that right now, David is on the run, trying to escape from Saul, who wants him dead. So Nabal knows that David is an outlaw. He's a fugitive, a rogue. And so he basically says, listen, I didn't ask for his help. I don't owe him a thing. Verse 11, why should I take my bread and water and the meat I've slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. So they did. And David strapped his on as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. Constraint. Now, did you know that self-control is a muscle? <laughs> you can strengthen it with use, but you can also wear it out. In this story, David's no longer the hero. He's been on the run for eight years, and his self-control is just shot. So when he receives Nabal's answer, he looks at his boys and he says, all right, we're going to go fix this, right? Straight away. He's like, we're just going to go handle this. And he rides off at the head of 400 armed men towards Nabal. As he rides along, he starts building his case to justify what he's not sure he should be doing. Ever do that? Do you ever know in your heart that the best thing is not to get even? But this time, this time it's too much. This time it crossed the line. They went too far. They got to learn a lesson, and I might as well be the teacher, right? Verse 14, one of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They didn't mistreat us. And the whole time, while we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day, they were a wall around us the whole time we were herding our sheep near them. And the servant says, now think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Verse 18, Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, 
five measures of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisins, and two hundred cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. That's code word for she called in Qdoba Catering and was like, cook the entire store. We got to go somewhere. All right? Listen to this. Then she told her servants, go on ahead. I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. How do you think that that dinner conversation is going to turn out? As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. Now, picture this. Abigail has sent a gift on ahead, but she's riding by herself. She turns a corner into this ravine, and, and coming down the mountainside is David and 400 armed men. Likely, David and his men are, are just several hundred feet away from Nabal's household. They could probably see it from where they are. Judgment is minutes away. And look at what David is thinking as he descends. See, this is the case that he was building. David had just said, it's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back, listen, he has paid me back evil for good. Now, I don't know if this is what you do when you're justifying yourself or um, it, when you start thinking you're a big deal, but for whatever reason, David starts referring to himself in third person. Check folks' Twitter feeds. If somebody does that, there's probably an issue there. Um, may God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. Oh, he's going to destroy stuff. Now when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David on her face, uh, on, with her face to the ground. Okay, this is important. Um, is, David, is David king yet? No. What is he? He's an outlaw. He's an outcast. He's a fugitive. There is no reason that a woman of wealth would ever bow down in front of a fugitive. If anything, it should be the other way around, right? So when Abigail gets off her donkey and bows down before David, she gets his attention because this is not how it's supposed to go. And in her wisdom, Abigail treats David as if he's already the man she hopes he will become. Verse 24, she fell at his feet and said, pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes before him. And as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives, and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands. Did you catch that? Did you catch that Jedi mind trick she just pulled? David's on his way to take people out. And she says, 
since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, it's like she just looks at him and goes, this is not the household you're looking for. It says, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. She gives him credit for being better than he was about to be. All right, Abigail likely knows that David didn't kill Saul in the cave, that he allowed him to live because he was the Lord's anointed. And she's saying, I know that is the person that you are. Verse 27, and let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your, your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for you because you fight, listen, you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. Um, in those days, you would keep your currency in a pouch, and then you would, you would protect it. You would put it in your belt. You would hide it underneath your cloak. And Abigail says, says, even though folks are looking to take your life, your life is secure in God's wallet. Now, I, I consider myself to, to usually have my ducks in a row. I'm fairly organized. Um, but I'll tell you what, it is kryptonite when Sarah says, it's in my purse, could you grab it? And I feel like I open it, and I'm, and I'm trying to navigate all of Manhattan. Like, oh, no. What's great is that Abigail is saying this to David. Guess what? I know Saul's trying to kill you, but your life, it's somewhere in one of these cubbies. He's never going to find it. Isn't that cool? Like, God has you. He has you. He's not going to let you go. And then she says in verse 29, but the lives of your enemies... He will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. Does that sound familiar to David? She takes him back to 15-year-old David facing down Goliath, and she's saying, God will fight for you. You don't have to fight for yourself. Do you want to? Then she speaks to his future. She asks without asking, what story do you want to tell? when this is nothing but a story you tell. Verse 30, when the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he's promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. Isn't that something? Isn't that powerful? It's like, listen, when you're looking back on this, this isn't going to weigh on your heart. This isn't going to keep you up at night because you didn't take innocent lives and you let the Lord fight for you. You didn't avenge yourself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. And this is where David comes to his senses and the temperature changes. He cools off. Verse 32, David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me, 
May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. I've heard your words and granted your request. There's more to David's story after this. But for today, we're just going to pause and we're going to look at Nabal, David, and Abigail. Three characters, three responses, but only one hero. Nabal. He repays evil for good. David. He is just about to repay evil for evil. And then Abigail, she repays good for evil. Nabal, repaying evil for good, that's maniacal. David repaying evil for evil, that's predictable. Abigail repaying good for evil, that is remarkable. Abigail was so far ahead of her time. She lived in the time of the Old Covenant where it was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? It wouldn't be for another thousand years until Jesus would take that principle and turn it completely upside down. And yet Abigail says, I'm going to repay good for evil. Now Peter, one of the first followers of Jesus, who saw Jesus unjustly crucified, he wrote a letter to some persecuted Christians, people who were being mistreated. And he said this. Take a look at this scripture with me. He said, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Now, in that letter, no kidding, the next two verses, Peter quotes David himself from Psalm 34. And listen to what Peter writes. These are David's words. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. Where do you think David learned that lesson? Isn't that something? And where do you think Peter would get such a crazy idea? From Christ himself. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5. He says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? That you may be children of your Father in heaven. Refusing to respond in kind, it may be the most Christ-like thing that you can do. 
Let me say that again. Refusing to respond in kind, it may be the most Christ-like thing that you can do. So as we wrap up, I have three questions for you. Question number one, do I really want to be even with someone I don't even like? Isn't that fun to think about at church? (laughs) Do I really want to be even with someone I don't even like? Even with someone you don't like is to be like them, right? Why would we want that? Even is easy. Wouldn't it be better to be ahead? You pull ahead by refusing to get even. See, each offense provides you with two options, to get even or to pull ahead. To be like your father in heaven or to be like the person who hurt you. You pull ahead and you pull the relationship ahead by refusing to get even. See, you'll either settle for that, for getting even, or you'll pull ahead and create an opportunity for someone else to move ahead as well. Either the person who offended you or someone who is watching how you respond. Question two, what story do I want to tell? What story do I want to tell? Is the story that we want to tell, I got even? She embarrassed me. He took credit for my idea. They threw me under the bus. So I got even. That is predictable and unremarkable. Final question. What would it look like for me to return good for evil? What would it look like for me to return good for evil? To use Peter's words, how do I bless somebody who has hurt or offended me? See, to do nothing in response to someone who has hurt you is to show mercy. They deserve it, but I'm just going to do nothing. But to actually do something good in response, that's to show grace. This is the best opportunity that we have to be like our Father in heaven. It's how our story intersects with the greatest story ever told. God returning good for evil. His son for our sin. You see, in our culture, to be a counterpuncher is predictable. But this, repaying good for evil, it takes you from predictable to remarkable. And I'll tell you what, it will set you free. It will set you apart. Don't settle for even. Even is easy. Don't write a predictable story. Make it remarkable. Do for others precisely what they don't deserve for you to do. Just like your Father in heaven did. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, in this moment, 
uh, we recognize um, that you repaid good for evil. You did something so remarkable that, that its repercussions are still being felt today. God, we're sitting in this room wanting to get to know you better because you chose to repay good for evil. Lord, we're not going to pretend that that's an easy thing. <laughs> we're not going to pretend like we can walk out of here and not need you. But God, that's why we come, and that's why we seek you, because we want to be your kids. We want to bear the name of Christ well. And so we ask, Lord, in, in the circumstance, perhaps, that we're going through right now, where we are at a decision point of how to repay you, someone who has mistreated us. God, would you, would you lead in that situation? If need be, Lord, send somebody to jump off a donkey and bow down in front of us. God, get our attention because we want to be the kind of people who live a remarkable life life in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.